0: Thank you, Luke. Thank you, the rest of us. uh, We can grab our copy of God's Word, and we are going to turn it to John chapter 21. John chapter 21. Boy, this thing is wobbly. Look at that. If it falls over on whatever, I guess it doesn't matter. Um, John chapter 21, as we talk today about how easily distracted we can become uh, when we are following Christ. That's going to be page, what is it, 807, I think, in your pew Bible, if you've got one of those close to you, John chapter 21, so if you can find the Gospel of John, we'll be in chapter 21, that's big number 21, and we'll start reading in just a minute in verse 20, which will mean little number 20. By the way, I'm Joshua. I'm the lead pastor here at Freshwater. So if you're a guest with us, welcome. We're ecstatic that you're here hanging out with us today. Our mission as a church is to help the people of our community and world become totally committed followers of Jesus Christ. So um, if I haven't met you yet this morning, I would love to meet you before you exit for the day. As you're turning to John chapter 21, uh, the the newsboys... Are a band that some of you might be familiar with. If you don't listen to Christian, like contemporary Christian music, that's okay. It's not like it's a prerequisite that you have to listen to Christian contemporary music in order to to follow Christ. But the Newsboys are a band that is a pretty big deal, and they're a pretty big deal in Christian circles. They kind of got a pop rock kind of thing going on. They play a lot of their music on the radio, and if you ever get to see them live, they really do put on a fun show. But at the first church that I was the pastor of, I wore many hats, and one of the hats that I wore was that I led uh, most of the student youth gatherings and the trips and all the things that they would go on. So we had loaded up all the cars once, and we headed to Kansas City, I think, to take the teenagers to a concert that uh, had a lot of bands there. But the biggest one, the headliner, was the Newsboys. So the way that these concerts go, if you've never been like them, as they been to one, is they have bands that are considered, you know, smaller, maybe a little bit less significant, who play for several hours before the big band gets on stage, very similar to how a secular concert happens. And that evening, that's exactly what had happened. And these opening bands did a great job of gaining your focus and your attention and kind of just helping you to uh, place your attention and your focus in one direction so that you're not thinking about a thousand different things so that you're ready when the newsboys get on stage. So that's where I'm at. That's my spiritual disposition at this point. So the band gets up, they start, and that's when I look over next to me and there is a guy, I assume he's a father, because he has what appears to be a six-year-old girl sitting on his shoulders. Hopefully it wasn't some random six-year-old girl that he just picked up. So I'm assuming that this is her father. She's sitting on his shoulders. They're there together. Um, and that's when I look at this little girl. She's a beautiful little thing. Hair in a ponytail, smiling, uh, enjoying herself. And initially, my heart just wants to be thankful that her parents are exposing her to Christianity. And that's what's going through my mind until I notice one thing. And by the way, I don't mean to be grotesque. That's not my intention this morning, but there's no other way to say it. She was picking her nose. Now look, we all do it, let's be honest, every single one of us does it, there's no doubt about that, but she was knuckle-deep digging for gold. I mean, you got kids, you know how they are, um, the, the difference between a six-year-old and us is that we generally know that that's something that you do when we think nobody's watching, but this little six-year-old girl, she hadn't figured that out yet, and what I remember thinking is that this precious little girl, God bless her heart, but isn't that exactly how life happens? Just when I think that I am focused, and just when I think that I am ready to go, and I think that my heart is in tune with the Lord, and there's nothing that anybody can do to pull it off track, this little precious distraction pops into my life. And no matter how small it might sometimes seem, it pulls you. Sometimes it drags your focus away from Christ and toward important, but we could probably say less significant things. Now I want you to hold that thought. Let me bring us up to date on the text that we're going to be looking at and what this has to do with the scripture that we're studying this morning. We are today finishing the Gospel of John. It's been a blast for me to get to walk you through this book. I hope that you have enjoyed it as much as I have. So to review the Gospel just for a second, the purpose statement of the Gospel, what is the purpose of the Gospel of John? John writes at the end of chapter 20, he says, I write these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you would have life in Christ's name. So that's what John has been ushering us toward over these 21 chapters. At this point in the Gospel, Jesus has died on the cross, Jesus has risen from the grave. Jesus has appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the disciples, to Doubting Thomas. And at that point, you remember that there's a scene change because Peter and some of the rest of the disciples decide that they're going to go fishing. Jesus appears to them on the beach. They make their way to the beach. They eat breakfast with Jesus. We looked at that two weeks ago. And then last week, we saw Jesus decide that he was going to help Peter with his past sin. And he was going to help Peter with his past mistake. Now, do you all remember what Peter's past sin was? If you don't remember what it was, Peter had denied Jesus three times in the crucifixion. Now, Peter has been eating breakfast with Jesus, and Jesus takes that time to reaffirm his love for Peter, but he also takes that opportunity to reaffirm Peter's love for Jesus. And last week was kind of a heavy text, if you remember that scripture, but at least we were able to leave the text with this feeling that, okay, Peter messed up big, didn't he, in the crucifixion account. Peter messed up bad. They get to have this event of reconciliation around this charcoal fire where they get to talk about Peter's past mistake. Their relationship is at least on a spiritual upswing. We at least anticipate, okay, everything's going to be better for now after Jesus has recommissioned Peter. Even with Peter reaffirming his love for Christ, Peter is still almost immediately, immediately bombarded with spiritual distractions. And I bet that every single one of us can relate to that. I bet every single one of us can remember a time when we felt like our relationship with God was finally improving. We felt like it was finally getting better. We felt like God was reminding us of the grace that he had shown to us. And then, all of a sudden, we feel something begin to pull our attention away from Christ. Well, friends, if you've ever felt like that, I want you to know that we've all felt like that. And Peter, in our text this morning, so soon after being recommissioned by Jesus, finds himself being pulled away by distractions. Distractions. By spiritual distractions. So this morning, that's what we see with Peter. We see two distractions that every one of us needs to be aware of. If these distractions are left unchecked, they're going to do a great job at wrecking your relationship with Christ. I promise you that. I'll give you that first distraction now, and then we'll look at the text. The first distraction is the distraction of other people. If you're doing the fill-in thing on the outline in your worship guide, that's going to be your first blank. The distraction of other people. Because look with me now at verses 20 and 21. Look at your copy of God's Word. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved. Understand, that's John. That's the same John that's writing this gospel. So Peter turns and he sees John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, following them, the one who had also leaned back against him during the supper. That's the night before Jesus was betrayed. And it said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? So pause right there for just a second. We're going to pick up in verse 22 in just a minute. But Peter and Jesus are now walking. You could kind of imagine um, them being off by themselves, a little away from the crowd with the other disciples maybe trailing behind them. Back in verse 19, which is a verse that we looked at last week, Jesus had told Peter, hey, you follow me. That's kind of what we ended the sermon with. And now, immediately, Peter looks at John, and remember, that's the same John that is, that is writing this book, and Peter asks Jesus, hey, Jesus, okay, you've corrected me. Remember what we saw last week? You've kind of chewed me out. Now, what about John? What about the other disciples, we could even say? And it's hard for us to know, okay, is Peter, like, genuinely concerned with John, is Peter like really seriously like I just want the best for John, Jesus, and why don't you now turn your attention to him? Or, or, and this one seems more likely, is Peter kind of looking for Jesus to correct John the same way that Jesus had corrected Peter? Just kind of to, to see it. Just kind of to, to, you know, see somebody else suffer the wrath of Christ. And that seems to be the more likely of the two options because look at the way that Jesus responds. Look at how he responds in verse 22. Look at your copy of God's word. Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So catch this. That response of Jesus is basically Jesus' polite way of saying, mind your own business. That's basically what he's saying. Peter, I just got done telling you, Peter. I just got done telling you. You follow me. Now you're asking me about the other disciples. If John doesn't suffer the same way that I told you that you're going to suffer, what does that matter to you? Mind your own business, man. That's what he's saying. And what this reminds us of is that it's not your responsibility and it's not my responsibility to be distracted with other people. And I'm going to say that again. It's not your responsibility, and it's not my responsibility to be distracted with other people. Now, part of you might be saying, okay, now, preacher, hold on here for just a second. Um, Because people are important aren't they? People aren't a distraction. We're supposed to love people. We're supposed to do everything we can to see the lost be saved and those people to trust in Christ, the Lord and Savior, to see people who are already Christians mature in the Lord. I'm a little offended that you'd imply that people can become a distraction. And if you're thinking that, know that I absolutely feel your pain. But at the same time, I bet every single one of us has felt the pull to gossip about another person, haven't we? To wonder why it seems like their life is filled with blessing while ours isn't. To wonder, okay, why does their marriage seem like it's perfect? And mine certainly isn't. To, when God begins to correct you and to show you what in your life needs to change, to automatically think to yourself, God, I wish you'd convict so-and-so's heart. I wish you'd change so-and-so's life. When God is saying, no, you don't need to be obsessed with all their problems. You've got plenty of problems in your own life. Now, I'm going to be maybe a little bit too transparent for the next minute or two, but that's okay. I personally love listening to preaching. Now, y'all might look at preaching and think, well, that's just something that we have to do. You know, so we don't sing for an hour straight, that, and you like whatever else, you know. But I personally, I love listening to preaching. I love to preach, but I love listening to preaching as well. So every chance I get to sit and listen to somebody else preach, I cherish that because I don't get to do it nearly as often as I'd like to. But I've discovered something, and this is just my heart. Hopefully it's not your heart. Hopefully it's not your life. But I've discovered that I am so arrogant and so prideful that oftentimes, During a sermon, I'll catch myself thinking, man, I wish I wish that one person that I know could hear this. They really need this sermon. They really need this message. And there might be possibly, I guess, good intentions in my heart sometimes for that. I don't know. Maybe I genuinely do desire for people around me to grow closer to Christ, and that's what's coming to the surface when I catch myself thinking stuff like that. But it may very well also be that God is trying to prick my heart... And all I'm concerned with is why he's not pricking somebody else's heart. Well, look, that's exactly what Peter was doing. Jesus was continuing to preach this sermon to Peter, this sermon about forgiveness, this sermon about reconciliation, this sermon about faithfulness, this sermon about perseverance, no matter what the situation might look like. And all Peter can think about is, Jesus, why don't you chew John out a little bit? That's what we're talking about when we're talking about being distracted with other people. So here's what I'll say before we move on. Should you care deeply about the salvation of other people? Yes, absolutely you should. Should you and I be willing to sacrifice in order for others to begin following Christ, in order for them to mature in the Lord? You better believe it. But at the same time, we better be careful that we never forget that you and I need the Lord just as much as everybody else does. Now, we're going to move on to the second distraction. Not only do we see the distraction of other people, but secondly, we see the distraction of impure speech. Impure speech. Because look with me now at verses 23, 24, and 25. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Notice that that, those last couple verses that John writes basically say that even with everything that we've covered in this book over the last year and a half as we've been working through it, there's so much more that happened and so much more that could have been recorded. And John even really wants to drive the point home by saying there's not enough room in all the world to contain the books if everything was written down. So John wants you and I to know that Jesus was even better than what we've got to see him display in the Gospel of John. But at the same time, verse 23 and on, they show us how this is a picture of the potential distraction of impure speech. Because the Gospel of John basically ends with the rumor. Did you catch that? And by the way, this is just one little bitty, tiny reason why we as a church hate rumors so much. This is just one little slice of why you and I must be resolute in resisting the temptation that we have to talk about other people behind their backs. Because we know how one little statement can be taken out of context, how one little sentence can be blown out of proportion. Think about what happens here. Jesus tells Peter, hey Peter, if it's my will that John is here all the way until I come back, what is that to you? Jesus is kind of using almost a hyperbole to make a statement. That to make a point, the same point we've already covered. Mind your own business. That's what he's saying. But because Jesus said that, what verse 23 tells us when it says, so the saying spread among the brothers is that the rumor mill began to do what only the rumor mill can do. And some folks begin to take that as meaning that John was never going to die. When that's not what Jesus said at all, is it? Jesus didn't say that John was never going to die. Jesus said, Jesus said, If he remains until I come back, what is that to you? So if you've ever said something and then it's repeated behind your back and it's told just a little bit differently, or if you've ever said something and it's kind of taken out of context or it's, you know, it's kind of taken differently than you intended it to be, you can sympathize with Jesus because that would oftentimes happen with what Christ would teach. But nonetheless, what we basically end the book with is a picture of how impure speech, and in particular, gossip, can wreak havoc in the life of a Christian, or in a group of Christians at this point. We could even say, in the church. And I'll admit that maybe this is something that maybe you've never really been exposed to as to what this looks like in your spiritual life, but the Bible is crystal clear, crystal clear regarding what God's opinion is of gossip and of impure speech altogether. As a matter of fact, I want you to listen to these verses. James chapter 1 verse 26. James, the brother of Jesus, he says, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul is condemning people that are dividing the church And he says, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Proverbs chapter 20 verse 19 tells us not to even associate with someone that gossips. Romans chapter 1 verse 29 seems to place the sin of gossip and those that gossip on the same level as those that murder, those that are greedy, Those that are arrogant. I mean, this is some serious stuff. I mean, the point seems to be just from a quick survey that these are, these are some things that, that seem to make God especially angry and gossip, gossip is one of them. Now let's stop and let's kind of pause and let's just ask the question, why? Like, why does, why does gossip, why does impure speech, why does gossip in particular seem to rustle God's feathers so much, other than the obvious, other than the fact that, that you could be saying things that are untrue. Why does God seem to have a special distaste for impure speech, and in particular, gossip? Well, there's an old proverb, it's a little bit corny, I'll admit, but um, it, I think it does a good job at kind of painting the picture for us nonetheless. I have no idea where it came from, I have no idea whether it's true or not, or where, you know, where its origins are, but it relates the story of a person who repeated gossip, some rumor about a neighbor. Soon the whole community had heard about this rumor and then it comes out, imagine this, that the rumor was untrue. So the person was very sorry that they had spread this rumor and they went to an elder in the community who had a reputation for great wisdom to seek advice. And the elder told the person, they said, here's what I want you to do. Go to your home and take a pillow and take that a feather pillow and take that feather pillow out into the yard and Break open that feather pillow and then spread those feathers all over the yard and then come back and talk with me tomorrow. So the person goes home and that's what they do. They take the pillow outside and they bust it open. The the feathers are all over the yard. The neighbors are calling the HOA or whatever it is, you know. And sure enough, they go back. This individual goes back to the elder the next day and the elder says, okay, now I want you to go and collect the feathers you scattered yesterday and bring them back to me. So the person obviously goes back to their yard, and and all the feathers are gone, and they don't know what to do. So the person returns to the elder and says, look, I could find none of the feathers I scattered yesterday. And the, the moral of the story is that it's easy to scatter the feathers, but it's difficult to get them back. And so it is with gossip, so it is with everything that we ever say, everything that you ever post on Facebook, every tweet you ever send out, everything you you ever say in public or in your life group, once you say it, it's really difficult to undo that, isn't it? We understand this. Now, if we take that, and, and we understand that, and we try to see it through a Christocentric lens, what are we doing when we gossip? Like, what is going on in our hearts We could even say, when we gossip. Well, we are saying to God that, God, you're not good enough for me. I have to look for satisfaction in tearing down other people. That's really what we're saying. Because that's really what it is. We think that by tearing down other people, we're going to lift ourselves up. So it's not only like on a practical level, just simply that the words hurt, but it's on a spiritual level. Because we know that that reason we say things like that or repeat things that we're unsure are true is because we're not resting in Jesus Christ. Something else has demanded our attention and what has happened? We have been distracted. And even though with this situation, John chapter 21, it not, might not be quite like that, you can definitely see how the early church suffered doctrinally, didn't they? This rumor starts spreading, teaching that John wasn't going to die. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a template regarding what you and I should say and what you and I shouldn't say. You'll notice these four empty spots in your outline. This is just kind of a template you can run things through in your head when you're trying to decide, okay, should I, should I be thinking, should I be saying this right now or should I not proceed with saying this? Should I post this? Should I not post it? Whatever that looks like. Number one, ask yourself, is it true? Is it true? If you don't know for sure that it's true, absolutely for sure that it's true, then you probably shouldn't be saying it, shouldn't be posting it, shouldn't even be thinking about it. Just write it off. Don't even pay a bit of attention. Number two, is it edifying? Edifying is a church word to to say, is it successful in building other people up? You know, I think of Ephesians 4.29, which says that everything that we say should be building other people up. It should be, you know, encouraging them in the faith. It should be ushering them along in the faith. Number three, is it timely? Is it timely? Just because something's true doesn't mean that it's necessarily something that needs to be said right now. So sometimes you might be like me where I got my head's always got a thousand things that I want to say, But I'm always kind of wrestling with that. Okay, is now the best time to say that? Should I push that off? Should I look at it with a long-term view of how, you know, you can affect someone's life for the good with the gospel, whatever else. So not only is it true, is it edifying, is it timely, but number four, is it said with a Christ-like intention? Is it said with a Christ-like intention? Is you saying it, are you saying it uh, because you want to, you have the intention of helping someone advance in the faith? He had the intention of helping somebody become more and more like Jesus. If it can't be worked through that template, then it's probably something that you shouldn't say and you shouldn't entertain. So what have we seen, friends? Let's kind of begin to wrap this up. We've seen how Peter, coming off of this great spiritual encounter with Jesus, he's immediately distracted, isn't he? immediately. And these two distractions rise to the surface. All of us need to be aware of them. First, the distraction of other people. We're not saying that it's bad to be concerned with other people, to want them to enter the faith, to repent and believe, to become more and more like Christ. That's not what I'm talking about. But it's absolutely a distraction if you consume yourself with them to the point where you're thinking bad thoughts about them, you're obsessed with them. And then secondly, the distraction of impure speech, where I think it's so, it just seems strange to me that of all the things that John could have finished his gospel with, he basically finishes it with a gossip session. You know, he shows us the implications of what can happen if our speech is impure. So both of these distractions can do for us the same thing that they did for Peter. They take our eyes off of cross, Christ. They, they cause us to focus on the world or on suffering or on pain or whatever rather than to cast our eyes to the Lord and to follow Jesus no matter what that future might be. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Well, let me give you now just some closing thoughts of application. I'm going to give you three ways very quickly that we can grow and learn from Peter's example, and then we will be just about done. Number one, number one, live your life in faithfulness. There's no need to compare it with others. Live your life in faithfulness. There's no need to compare it with others. The startling thing, just imagine that you are walking with Jesus on the beach of the Sea of Galilee, for crying out loud. Jesus has just risen from the grave, not very far in the past. Um, You've had your charcoal, fire, fish breakfast. Jesus has just reconfirmed his love for you and really reconfirmed your love for him. And of all the things that you're doing, you're looking at everybody else. Man, it's something, isn't it? What a picture. I want you to know, if you're a Christian, there's absolutely no reason for you to compare your life with other people. You you have been justified in the eyes of God. Allow God to do his own work in you. Number two, live your life in obedience. There's no need to talk about others. There's no need to talk about others. Our speech is in very many ways a reflection of our relationship with Christ. Now, that's just the overarching testimony of God's word. If you spend your time talking about other people, gossiping about them, taking statements and intentionally blowing them out of proportion, welcome to high school, you know, there's something spiritually sick in, in your soul. I want you to know that. Because if we as Christians believe in justification by faith. You have been justified in the eyes of God in every single way. Every sin that you've ever committed has been forgiven and cast as far as the east is from the west. If you're living that, if you're living in that, if you're acknowledging that, the, we would never, ever have a desire to try to tear somebody else down because we're already completely secure in the eyes of God. Number three, live your life in holiness. Don't forget that our speech matters. Live your life in holiness. Don't forget that our speech matters. I'll close with this. Fanny Crosby is a woman that, if you're interested in Christian history, this is somebody that should be on your radar. She was a late 19th, early 20th century hymn writer and poet, um, wrote some of the world's most noted hymns, and no doubt if I was to name some of them to you, you would absolutely recognize them. But she was blind. And here's what happened. It said that at six weeks old, she caught a cold, her eyes became inflamed, and standard procedure then was for the doctor to place what was known as a mustard plaster on the baby's eyes. So it was some type of a like a mustardy, pasty stuff made out of mustard seed, um, and they would place it on a bandage, they put it on the child's eyes for a period of time, and that was what they did to supposedly heal the inflammation well lo and behold after the doctor does this the girl's blind so that's Fanny Crosby's life but Fanny Crosby this woman that went on to become an amazing hymn writer and poet said that even if she could go back and change that event so that she never would have been blind she wouldn't if she could choose she would choose to stay blind to be unable to see now you know why The why is actually the exact reason that we've talked about today. She said that if she could see all the interesting and beautiful objects that she was absolutely positive the world contained, if she was able to see all that, there's no way she would have been able to write all the hymns that God used her to write. Some of them going on to become the most well-known songs of worship the English language has ever had. So she decided, when asked, she said, no, I would rather stay blind than to be distracted with sight. Now look, friend, that's the way you and I need to think about any kind of a distraction that's going to potentially take your and my eyes off of Christ. See, the Christian-American conundrum is that we approach things so nonchalantly. We act as though this stuff really isn't that important. We act as though it's not really that significant. When these are not small fry issues, these are issues and these are situations that can dramatically hinder your relationship with Christ. So we shouldn't just avoid them, we should resist them. You should fight against them with everything that you have. So my encouragement to you is that when you feel something taking your eyes off of Jesus, whether it falls into either of these two distractions that we've looked at this morning or something completely different, whatever else it may be, my prayer is that you and I would respond to that the same way that Peter should have responded, and that's by resting in the gospel, by looking to Christ and Christ alone, and by following him. Now we're going to turn in a minute to a time when we celebrate everything that we've seen over the course of this last year and a half um, as we've been working through the Gospel of John. We as a church believe that there are two ch- church ordinances, one of them being baptism and the other one being communion, or sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper. When a person trusts in Jesus, when they repent and believe, one of the first steps of, o- of obedience is to be baptized. And if you're here today and if you haven't been baptized, if you haven't been um, baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I would encourage you talk with me after the service i 'd love to talk with you about what that looks like and how you can follow with that step of obedience. But we um, as a church, um, those that have been baptized into the church and those that have, are following Christ, Jesus on the night before he 's betrayed, what does he do? He takes some bread and he takes some wine. He says this bread represents the body that I'm going to give up for you and this wine represents the blood that I'm going to shed for you. And he tells us to do this ordinance, to keep doing this until he comes back. So we as a, a church at Freshwater, we have what is called um, what we call open communion. So if you're a baptized follower of Christ and you're visiting from another church, we still encourage you to take part in this ordinance with us. We come forward as we sing in just a second, and we take a piece of bread and we dip it in the juice and we eat. We remember that this is not salvific in any way, but this simply helps us to cherish the gift of eternal life that God has given us to remember and to proclaim to each other um, and to the world that Christ has died. He's given up his body and his blood for us. So we're going to stand and we're going to sing in just a second. As we stand and sing, just a couple of logistical issues that I'll, I'll let you know about. Um, as soon as uh, um, we stand and, we, and, and the music starts, I'm going to ask you to step out into the aisles. Those of you that do want to take communion, and you can come forward in your respective aisle. Um, there are also giving baskets up here so you can give your um, offering toward the, the ministry of the church. Um, whenever you come up to take communion, there's also gluten-free bread for those of you that have a gluten intolerance. And when you come forward, just come down the middle aisles. And um, when you exit, just go around by the wall and come back in in the back. And that's going to be the best way for all of us to do this. Together together today on the Lord's Day. So I will pray for us, and then then we're going to stand, and we're going to sing together, and uh, we'll take communion. Heavenly Father and Lord, I thank you for the fact that you love us, the fact that you've done absolutely everything that it takes for us to be in a relationship with you. And Lord, I want my life and I want all of our lives to be just a little bit more like you want it to be. Um, I thank you, Lord, that we've got to spend this time marching through the Gospel of John, and now that we've come to the end of it, it's like this feeling of satisfaction and and joy that we've got to do this together as a church. We also now uh, prepare to take part in the ordinance that you established, that you started the night before you'd be crucified. I pray that as we take the bread, as we dip it in the, the juice, as we eat, we would remember the sacrifice that you have made for us.